Well, welcome to 2018. As we've been preaching our way through the book of Matthew through 2017, um, we've been learning a great deal about our Lord Jesus, and it doesn't feel a coincidence to me that we're in Matthew chapter 18 here on the first Sunday of this year. Um, as I've prayed about this message, I, f- I feel like God set things up this way. I feel like God set us up so that we'd be on this chapter to begin a year this year because there are two major and connected themes that are in this chapter uh, that are great posture for how we enter this new year. The first of those major themes is humility. The final thoughts that Jesus shared in this passage, um, he was in Capernaum. This was his last discourse to his disciples before before they left Galilee for the last time, went south toward Judea, ended up eventually in Jerusalem, where obviously that's what he... What happened in Jerusalem was what he had come to earth to do, the great work of his death and resurrection for our forgiveness and for our new life in him. And so these are his, that's the context we're in. This is the last words to his disciples before they hit the road to go to Jerusalem. And the final thoughts that Jesus shared here were in response to a question that his disciples brought to him. His disciples came to him with a question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, not all English translations include this word then in the sentence or in the question. It's certainly there in the Greek New Testament. If you, if you know Greek, you'll find what's called an inferential particle, which is like the word therefore which was in that sentence in the Greek. And it means it's, it's an expression of an inference or, or a, 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 the description of a, well, the inference, a train of thought going in a certain direction that's just sort of pointing in that direction. Who then is the greatest is referring to something, just like the word therefore is always referring to something past. So why did the disciples ask, Who then is the greatest? Why didn't they just say, who's the greatest? Who then is the greatest? What was their train of thought? I think the disciples had been having a conversation apart from Jesus because it actually says in the text, um, Matthew says, they came to Jesus and asked him, who then is the greatest? So having come to Jesus, they must have come from somewhere. They, They came from some kind of conversation perhaps, some kind of discussion uh, that, that led them to want to ask this question? Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that this question is being asked immediately after the Mount of Transfiguration. That's, that's the previous chapter where Jesus took three of his disciples up onto a mount and was sort of glorified before them. Well, those three disciples must have felt pretty special. They might have even felt pretty great. And, uh, and that was shortly after Jesus had spoken a very special blessing over Peter, and Peter might have been feeling pretty pretty great uh, as well. And so they might have been having conversations amongst themselves about, you know, this idea of greatness. And, and they wanted to know who then is greatest, 
Am I? Uh, like Peter might have been wondering, or James and John who went up on the mount with him? Well, we can see in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, by the way Mark and Luke describe this episode, that they actually were arguing about who was the greatest before they came and asked this question. Mark and Luke explain that. Matthew just infers it with the word then. It's basically saying, who then? Who then is the greatest? Now, I don't know if that question is, seems relevant to you. I don't know how many of us in this room uh, lack the humility to sometimes wonder, hey, you know, am I great at something? I'd like to be great at something. I wouldn't mind being great at something. I mean, that crosses my mind sometimes. I, I have to be honest. I mean, I, I kind of would like to excel and be great at something and even be recognized for that greatness. There's a, there's a side of me that kind of is drawn to that. Now, social media, like Facebook, is a terrible place for this kind of tendency. Our thinking can become so warped that we can have this idea that if we get enough likes on something we post, we're, we're something great. You know, like I posted a picture and I got like a hundred likes. Oh, I, I must be really something to get a hundred likes for that photo. Like what difference does it make what, how many people like my photo? It doesn't have anything to do with who I am, but, but we somehow think better of ourselves when we get a lot of likes for something. Now, maybe none of you are like that. Maybe I'm the only one in this room who actually likes that little red dot at the top of the Facebook page that says somebody liked something that I posted. But anyway, I have occasionally used Facebook to enter into discussions or feedback on news articles that have been posted by news sources on Facebook. Like uh, National Post is one that I, I can, I'm recalling that I entered into a conversation to do with, with um, this, this article I saw from him and, and hoping that my comments, which should be for the whole World Wide Web to read, uh, would just make people think, what a great guy. Like, that is a very insightful comment. Like, the, there's a smart guy, you know? So anyway, on one such occasion, I commented on a National Post article that was on Japanese economics. Yeah, Japanese economics. Okay. Now, just to be clear, I know nothing about Japanese economics. Nothing at all. But because I did community development in Sudan for a year, you know, and I know about this much, maybe maybe this much, to do with community development, I thought that maybe I could have something to say about Japanese economics. Well, anyway, my, my comments certainly generated a fair bit of feedback, and, and yet it was not the kind of feedback I was looking for. Everyone was arguing against my point, and yet I was still sticking to my point until everything came to a screeching halt by a very fitting and cutting remark made by some person I don't know. Someone wrote, and I quote, I don't mean to be rude, but your lack of clarity seeing the big picture is astounding. 
astounding. I was dumbstruck. I was embarrassed, and, and rightly so. So my first impulse was to beat a hasty retreat. What you can do with Facebook, if you're not familiar with it, is you can put your account to sleep temporarily or as long as you want. And I decided I'm going to put my account to sleep. I am just so embarrassed. I want to hide. And I know if I put my account to sleep, they won't be able to find me. I mean, doesn't that sound really mature? You know, the guy preaching to you this morning was trying to hide in the digital bushes, trying to, uh, like, so that nobody would find this guy who was being so arrogant about his ignorance. So anyway, there I go. I did it. I went through with it so that those mean people couldn't keep saying mean things about me. And it was in the midst of all that, in my flustered embarrassment, that I suddenly heard the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said, that was me. You know that comment about being astounded at your lack of ability to see the big picture? That was, that was me. Well, I was stunned as that, as that sort of sank in. And then I, the next thing I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, was, wouldn't it be better if you just humbled yourself and apologized for being so arrogant about your ignorance? No, I don't think that would be better at all. <laughs> but I did. I reactivated my account. I took it back from being asleep. I reactivated it, and I typed in a comment saying, you know what, I really apologize. I, I, I really didn't know. What I, was, I got carried away. I, I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, the disciples also seemed to be looking in all the wrong places for how to achieve greatness. I'm going to read the first five verses of Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus called a little child to him set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will be by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. The first word we should notice in Jesus' answer to this question, who then is the greatest, where do you look for for true greatness, is the word converted. Or in other translations, changed or turned. Those, the Greek word can mean any one of those three. And you must turn to enter the kingdom of God. Now remember, Jesus wasn't talking to somebody who'd never heard him teach before. Like, these were his disciples he was teaching. These weren't, this wasn't the, the crowd. These were disciples who had already sent out on ministry earlier in Matthew to heal the sick and raise the dead. These guys knew what Jesus was capable of. They'd seen miracles. But he was still saying, you guys need to change. You still need to be converted. Did you know that the word converted, the word conversion, and the New Testament is in the progressive, continuous tense. Do you know what that means? The verb tense for converted in the New Testament means progressive, continuous means, or present, continuous. The present, continuous means it's always happening. 
God is calling us to continually be converted. Continuously be converted to become like Jesus. So he's calling us, unless you are converted and become his little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So even if you're here today and you know Jesus, Jesus can still ask you to be converted. Continually be converted to be more like Jesus. Jesus' use of this word change or turn or converted makes it clear that there's something in us that's not right. Well, that's pretty obvious when you hear my Facebook story, right? There's obviously something wrong with this guy. There needs to be a turning. And that's what the Holy Spirit asked me to do. Wouldn't it be better if you turned? (laughs) Yeah, it was better. The Greek word used here can speak of a physical turning as well as of a change of heart. It's an emphasis on turning from a set direction or a set attitude to a new direction or a new attitude. Unless you change, Jesus said, unless you change. And Jesus knew that the things that had happened, he knew about the transfiguration. He knew about these things he'd said to Peter and how it could go to his head. He knew their vulnerability and that, and that they needed a, a clearer definition of greatness and what it meant. Now, there are many words written about what it means to become like a child. When Jesus said, this is greatness, become like this little child. And if you read commentary after commentary, you'll find that <laughs> for every commentary, there's, another, there's a new list on what it means to be like a child, and they'll come up with different characteristics. But it's worth noting that Matthew emphasizes just one thing in his account of what it means to become like a child. He emphasizes humility. Humility. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, I was tempted to try to come up with my own list of what it's like to become like a child. Um, You know, things like trust, simplicity, dependence. Those are all obvious things that would be good ways to become like a child if we want to humble ourselves like a child. But wouldn't it be better to let Matthew interpret Matthew? That's a great principle of interpretation, is to let the writer of his own book interpret what he meant by that expression, because he uses that expression in other places in his book. For example, in Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus gives another description of who can enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. There's a clue. Being poor in spirit, he says, unless you're poor in spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. There must be some commonality. Matthew 20, 25, Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be your slave. So now he's talking about servanthood instead of being childlike, but he's still talking about humility. The greatest among you shall be your servant, Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So there we see servanthood and humility in the same verse. It's obvious that those who are poor in spirit are low 
So they qualify. They, they, they're somebody like a child. I think what Jesus was after was he was after, when he called, said become like a child, he was basically saying get low. Become low like a child. Be in the lowest place. Be humble. Be like a servant. Be like a slave. Now, why is this so important? You know, when you think about it, it seems kind of counterintuitive. We're called to get a job done. We're called to, to um, you know, spread the word and get the gospel out all over the world. And why would we want to reduce ourselves? If we reduce ourselves, it's like putting a billboard behind a building. Like, nobody will see what you're talking about. Like, why would we want to reduce ourselves? We want to, we want to make ourselves more visible so people get the message. Well, no, no. Jesus says that's my job. My job is to make more of you. But your job is to make more of Jesus. You, your, Jesus would say your job is to make more of me. So that's why Jesus is asking us to get low. So that as we get low, or as John the Baptist said, as we decrease then he increases. As we decrease, people see more of Jesus in our lives. We're out to make him famous, not to make ourselves famous. You know, when I lived in Sudan, I lived uh, in a desert. And every so often we had to leave the village and go out into the boonies where there were some projects on the go. One of these places we had to go to was way far away, like, like a full day's drive across, you know, roadless desert. And when we'd get there, we had to rehabilitate a borehole there. Well, Khartoum, some part of the Sudanese government had sent uh, a machine that could rehabilitate that borehole. We were paying for it, but they were, it was the government who sent it. And so they sent their own government worker with it, along with all the laborers. And so at night, we'd sit around the campfire, and we'd just kind of, you know, chew the fat. You know, the work was done for the day, and on one of these occasions, this Sudanese gentleman that, was, that had come from the government with the machine, who had been educated in England, so he was fluent in English, so I could easily speak with him. He said, Ken, I've lived in England. I've lived in one of these Western countries. I know what it's like. It's beautiful. Um, why would you want to leave that and come and live in this dust storm of a place? That's exactly how he put it. He called it a dust storm of a place. And, you know, you can answer that question a million ways. Why did you come here? But what crossed my mind is, this is what I said. I said, remember, this guy's a Muslim and uh, probably doesn't know a lot about Christianity. And I said to him, Jesus, when Jesus came, he said he came to serve rather than to be served. And I just want to follow his example. Well, this guy started muttering that to himself several times out loud. He said, to serve rather than to be served. To serve rather than to be served. He said it like three times, shaking his head as he said it. And I saw tears well up in his eyes as he said this phrase over again and over again. A week later, he was saved. A week later, he gave his heart to the Lord because he was so taken by this Savior who came to serve rather than to be served. We must decrease, so he must increase. This is the humility we're called. Get low. 
so that people can see Jesus. Now, I'm aware, I'm very aware of how many people in this room regularly put this into practice. I can catch the eye of many people in this room who I've known for various numbers of years, and I can, as I see your face, I can think of examples in the past where you have sacrificed, where you have, where you have practiced what we see in Philippians chapter 2. One of the ways we can humble ourselves is listed in Philippians chapter 2 where it says to, in humility, consider others more significant than ourselves. I know people in this room, I know people in Gateway who regularly put that into practice. Putting others is more important than yourselves. And, and serving others at cost to yourself so that people can experience the love of Jesus through you. You do that. That's something I'm so proud of Gateway about. That there's so many people with servant hearts ready to lay their lives down, ready to get low so that Jesus can be magnified in your life as you consider others' interests as more important, as you humble yourself and consider others more important than yourselves. You guys do that. I've watched it in real time. And I know I could point you out. I could point you out. And you'd think, why is he doing that? I don't want to be noticed. I want Jesus to be noticed. Because there is a humility that says, I didn't do this to draw attention to myself. Humility is the key that Jesus was trying to reinforce with his disciples. Now, i got to be honest. Despite all the great examples I see amongst you all, I'm not always the best example. I'll tell you what kind of secret thoughts go on in my heart. How many people noticed my accomplishment? I had that thought in my heart. What do people think of my accomplishment? I don't know how many of you have ever thought that too. Or what does the Lord see me as worthy enough to be called to do for him? These are some of my secret thoughts. It doesn't sound like humility, but that's why Jesus says, unless you are converted, unless you turn, unless you change, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's calling us to. So what will be our posture throughout this year of 2018? You know, after I made that apology on Facebook, after I made that comment saying, you know, I am so sorry for um, being so arrogant about my ignorance. I got carried away and sorry about that. The guy who had pointed out how astounding my inability to see the big picture came back on, followed up my apology. And he, he, wrote, he wrote this. I didn't expect this. I didn't expect anybody to care about my apology. He said, he believed the world, he said, I believe the world would be a better place if there were more people willing to back down and apologize when wrong the way you've just done. So despite my weakness, despite my own arrogance, despite those own secret, those secret thoughts in me that craved greatness for the wrong reasons, 
because I listened to the Holy Spirit and I turned, the world just became a better place. So God just used an arrogant ignoramus to bless the world. Come on. If he can use me, he can use you. God uses cracked pots, people who are imperfect. And what he was saying, what he was affirming by that comment was the world-changing, kingdom-advancing value of humility. That's how important humility is. It actually changes our world. The world, he said, what did he say? I don't know who this guy was, but he said, the world would be a better place if there were more people like you. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that to me. Suddenly I'm starting to feel great. <laughs> oh, dear. So for you, is there a situation at work or at home or with your extended family or at school or in your neighborhood in which you can get low like a child and serve so that you can express the kind of greatness Jesus was after? I think there's something appropriate about asking this kind of a question at the beginning of a new year. God, are there specific ways in which you want me to humble myself and serve in 2018, choosing to be low like a child as I live for you this year? Are there specific ways? When I say the word specific, I mean, is the Lord speaking to you about something specific? In where you can get low. Now the second value, or the second major theme in this chapter is connected to this value of humility, and it's forgiveness. Most of Matthew chapter 18 has to do with sin and forgiveness. If you read through it, we're not going to go through all of Matthew chapter 18. We just don't have time. But if you were to glance through it, you'll see there's all kinds of passages to do with sin and forgiveness. But eventually... As Jesus teaches on sin and forgiveness, Peter steps forward and interjects with his own attempt to appear big-hearted and great. Here's Peter again, being impetuous, and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter was trying to appear big-hearted. In Peter's time period, the accepted teachings of the rabbis was that you could be forgiven three times for a repeated sin. The fourth time there was no forgiveness. Oh my goodness. How much trouble would some of us be, or all of us be, if we could only be forgiven three times for the same sin? But that was the, that was the teaching of their day. And Peter was trying to appear great again by being so big-hearted as to say, hey, how about seven times? Well, Jesus' answer puts him right in his place and is very to the point. He says, I don't say to you seven times. I say 70 times seven. Now that 70 times seven just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? 70 times seven. Sounds very familiar to many of us. We've heard it so many times. 490, 70 times seven is 490. We all know that that doesn't mean Jesus is putting a cap on forgiveness at 490. He's basically saying there's no limit to the forgiveness that's available. 70 times 7 
is meant to be an example of don't stop forgiving people. Now, I have a dog. Does this apply to dogs? His name is Charlie. Now, you may think I'm going to use Charlie as an example because Charlie is so forgiving, which he is. He's a very forgiving dog. I think all dogs are very forgiving. But, no, what I'm actually planning to say is that I have trouble forgiving my dog. Sometimes I just call him dog. He answers to dog. We received him just over five years ago at Bethlehem Live 2012. So how can you not forgive that that kind of a dog? Like that's that's Charlie when he was just like six or seven weeks old and didn't weigh 80 pounds. The, the five years since Bethlehem Live have provided plenty of time for him to require forgiveness over and over again for a, a number of issues. Actually, I, I lose patience with Charlie long before he gets close to 490. I mentioned this to Peter Todd. I, we were in a conversation. I said, I hate my dog. Peter says, you shouldn't hate your dog. Well, well, Peter doesn't even like my dog. Like, but he doesn't say that he hates my dog. He, so he says, you shouldn't hate your dog. He says, is it wrong to hate my dog? He says, yeah, it's, it's wrong to hate your dog. You need to forgive your dog. Does anybody want a dog? Yeah, <laughs> uh, well. Actually, Peter was right. I did need to forgive my dog. I, I, I do need to forgive my dog. Every day I need to forgive my dog. He's okay when we're home. It's when we leave the house. Like when we come home, if he's not at the door wagging his tail when we get in, something's wrong. Like he's hiding somewhere. Like even as I say this, I'm wondering... What's he doing right now? Like we left him alone. I might have to forgive my dog again today. And my kids. And my wife. And myself. Every day. I need forgiveness. And if I reach 490, Jesus says, let's keep going. If you confess your sins, I'm faithful and righteous, and I'll forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus then tells a parable. And you, you may know the parable. Um, rather than read it, I'm just going to sort of sort of paraphrase it here. You know, there's this, this king, and he's sort of settling accounts with some of his servants, and one comes forward with a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, Jesus... I don't know if you can appreciate how much shock value Jesus was looking for when he said 10,000 talents. Do you guys know what a talent is worth? How many? Raise your hand if you know what a talent is worth, a biblical scriptural talent. Well, a talent is worth 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii is a lot because one denarius is a day laborer's wages. So one talent... One talent is 6,000 
day laborer's wages, or nearly 16 and a half years' wages. That's just one talent, 16 and a half years. So 10,000 talents is 60 million denarii, or 60 million days' wages, which is 164,271 years' wages. That's mind-blowing. This guy owed him 164,271 years' wages. Settle up. Well, the guy pled for mercy. He says, I can't do it. And the king forgives him that debt. That is mind-blowing. At today's wages for a day laborer, that would be $5 billion for a day laborer. So we're talking, you know, $5 billion cleared off his, his record. Wow. Then he goes out and he finds a fellow servant who owes him three months' wages. 164,271 years, three months. Big contrast. And that was the shock value that Jesus was looking for because when this guy met this fellow servant who owed him three months' wages, he wouldn't let him off the hook and he had him thrown into prison. And then the king heard about this and had had an issue with this. I just forgave you this huge debt. And you can't forgive your brother from your heart, the smaller debt? Now, if that big number, $5 billion, sounds kind of ridiculous, like, come on, I mean, why, why make it so big? Maybe it's not so ridiculous. Like, if you add up the number, the sum total of our sins, think about it. Every sinful thought, I'm talking not just every day, but every week, every year, every all through our lives, every sinful thought, every sinful attitude, every sinful reaction, every sinful feeling, every sinful impulse, every sinful motivation, every sinful inclination, every sinful desire, every sinful affection, every sinful preference, every sinful behavior, every sinful action. Well, we're certainly beyond 490 it's probably well beyond $5 billion debt. Because every one of those sins is against Almighty God, our Creator. And yet, He says, you're forgiven because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, His, his death was, was enough to be a substitute for the entire human race, if the entire human race were to come to Jesus and accept that gift. His death was to say, I'm going to take the price for your sins, the penalty for your sins on myself, so that all your sins can be wiped off the slate. Wow. And then we can't forgive our brother from our heart? So this brings us back to Jesus' words about becoming like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Recognizing that we desperately need the Father's help to share the forgiveness to the degree that he's forgiven us. We can't do it. But that's good news. Because the good news is he wants to help us. And he's saying, become like a child. Depend on me in humility Depend on me, and I'll help you to express the same forgiveness I've expressed in your life. I'll help you to express it 
amongst all the people in your life and even your dogs. I have, I've been working hard at this this whole week because I've worked on this sermon. I've tried to be really nice to Charlie all week long. So I'm trying to live it. This makes it obvious that no one can earn their way to heaven. We need God's help to remain low like a child. So once again, a question to ask ourselves. Is there a situation at work or at home or with your extended family or at school or in your neighborhood in which there's someone you need to forgive? Chances are some of you will be thinking of someone. In a room this big with this many people, there's probably somebody thinking of someone right now. And God wants you to forgive them the way he's forgiven you. There's really something really important about asking a question like this so that we start a year off right. There's value in deciding on this first Sunday of 2018 that I will choose to get low this year, living with childlike humility and forgiveness in my heart, come what may. This is a phrase I would encourage to have on our heart, a posture for 2018. I will choose to get low this year, living with childlike humility and forgiveness in my heart, come what may. And as we do, it's going to result in each of us going deeper with God. As we do this, it's going to result in each of us advancing his kingdom. As we do, it's going to result in each of us changing our world through the humility we express. And our lives will be changed. This community of faith will be changed. This city will be changed. And this world will be changed. Because we got low so that Jesus could be exalted in our life. And we lived like a child with forgiveness in our heart, come what may. That's what I invite you to this year. God bless.